You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. In today's episode, David Rowe speaks with Corey Sharkey. As well as being Director of Foreign and Defence Policy at the American Enterprise Institute, Corey is a contributing writer for The Atlantic and a regular on the popular Deep State Radio podcast. Dave and Corey talk about the future of the international order, the state of American politics from the perspective of a lapsed Republican, and Corey's irrepressible optimism about the future of democracy and open economies. Apologies for the slight compromise in audio quality. This podcast was recorded on the sidelines of Aspie's Disruption and Deterrence Conference, along with a number of other upcoming podcasts. Welcome to the Aspie Podcast. I'm David Rowe, and we are extremely fortunate to have Corey Sharkey joining us today. Corey, thanks for coming on the show. It is such a pleasure. So for those of you who don't know, and I, I'd be surprised if there are any, Corey is uh, with the American Enterprise Institute, a prestigious think tank. She's a regular writer for The Atlantic, and she is, and this is my personal favourite, a uh, regular guest on the Deep State Radio podcast, <laughs> of which I've been a fan for many, many years. And if any of our listeners are not currently into Deep State Radio, I do strongly advise that you get into it. Corey, let's get straight into it. You were on a, a panel at our conference yesterday on net assessment. You were very much talking about big picture issues. Let's just talk about the future of the international order a little bit, small issue to jump into, but insofar as we are essentially competing for the shape of the next international order or the evolution of the international order, and that is underway, as a historian, as a thinker, as an observer, are you discerning any trends yet as to where it is going? What, what can we expect the international order to look like, say, later in the century? I think later in the century, it will actually look a lot like it looks now for three reasons. First, because the declinist concerns about the United States, I believe, are overstated. Second, because I believe China is in its actions activating the antibodies against its continued success, and it's the major challenger to the existing order. And the third reason is, even though I worry about authoritarian alignment, Russia, China, North Korea, Iran, the strongest trend is actually cooperation among countries seeking to uphold the existing rules-based order. Australia is an outstanding example. India, Japan have all taken very significant strategic choices in the last 10 or 15 years. And there was a period of much greater passivity by small and middle powers about the maintenance of the order. And I think the concern about whether the United States is still committed to being its anchor has so alarmed our closest friends and the beneficiaries of the order that they are seeking to hold hands, come up with cooperative ideas, make policy choices and investments that will strengthen the order. And I think it wasn't obvious that was going to be what happened. And it's really joyful Corey, you've made me feel uh, better, actually, than I've felt in a while. So thank you for that. A few things to unpack there. One is on American enduring strength. Many of us in countries like Australia who are 
lifelong or at least long-term admirers of the United States and its role in the world are currently watching the U.S. with a kind of, you know, uh, you know, excruciating uh, sensation through through hands over eyes. What what's your best message, I suppose, to people like that around the world who are thinking? You know, there is a real problem with the with American politics, and it might presage some kind of decline, self-inflicted if not external. Uh, so I'm not sure how comforting this is going to be for you, my friend. But the United States isn't newly a country full of crazy people run by reckless politicians. We have almost always been a country full of crazy people run by reckless politicians, and the American political system, unlike parliamentary systems. Is designed to be very tightly tied to public attitudes, so you get wider swings in American politics, I think, than you get in most other developed democracies, because we're always dissatisfied with our government and trying to fix what we're unhappy about at the moment. My favorite comment on American politics comes from a British historian, Bertha Ann Reuter, in 1923. And she wrote, Americans are people so extreme in politics or religion or both that they could not live in peace anywhere else. And that, that feels true. We are going through a febrile moment in American politics that, you know, I, I share the anxiety that many of America's friends have about the damage that Donald Trump's presidency did to democracy in America and the very great risks to democracy in America and to the international order that a second Trump term would pose. It's very early days in the 2024 election. And so I, like, like a lot of Americans, are you know, trying to have conversations around the dinner table and around among our friend groups to try and see what our our friends are thinking and try and persuade my mother not to vote for Donald Trump again. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to be pedantic, but as much as historical attention on history can be possibly reassuring in some ways, you've never had a, a presidential candidate who's facing four criminal charges or, you know, four significant charges some relating to you know the, the the essence of democracy itself just before an election and having you know a, a vast majority of um, of supporters on that side of uh, of politics backing him nonetheless why wouldn't we think that political culture is sort of somehow broken if that many people are still supporting him despite all of the ample evidence so we have a way to tell what Americans think and that's elections and it's true Americans voted for Donald Trump in 2016, but we Republicans lost ground in the 2018 presidential election. We lost the 2020 presidential election because of President Trump's vociferous advocacy of candidates that appeal to a minority of Americans but cannot win statewide elections. Republicans lost the two Senate seats in Georgia and I think, as Governor Kemp of Georgia has also said, that if Republicans continue to relitigate prior elections, we are going to lose future elections. The other thing I think is you shouldn't lack confidence. We shouldn't lack confidence in 
the justice system in the United States and in the political system in adjudicating those issues politically. You know, it's true no American presidents ever suffered four indictments, but those indictments have been brought and juries have been impaneled. And when President Trump and his supporters tried to contest the 2020 election, they brought something like 56 cases in the courts. They lost every single one of them in front of judges, President Trump himself nominated to the bench. So I don't think we should, you know, the wheels of justice grind slow, but they do grind true. And just for our listeners' benefit, I should point out you are a, a Republican by, by background. Um, so it's just to be clear, Corey is not speaking as a Democrat or, or <laughs> as an independent. You are a, a traditional Republican, worked uh, in the administration of George W. Bush, if I'm correct. Yeah. Moving on to the, the, the second point that you made on the sort of reassuring future of the international order the state of China at the moment and where, where China's at. Obviously, its economy is um, uh, going through some difficulties, probably structural. Economists uh, say that this was uh, always going to happen. There is uh, there is some inevitability to it. How do you actually see that playing out? I mean, do you see any of those risks that, that economic peaking or even economic decline at the moment will actually make uh, China more dangerous in the near term? Yeah, so in my team of foreign and defense policy experts at the American Enterprise Institute. We have three warring tribes on China, and one is Hal Brands and Michael Beckley. Um, I'm sorry, I should have started by saying that all of us agree that we are looking at a China that is marooned in the middle income trap, that the choices that they made that gave their economy such dynamism in the last 40 years or so are they've run the string out on them, on infrastructure-based development, on movement of people from rural regions to the cities. And the Chinese Communist Party is appears incapable of making the kind of economic choices that would restore that dynamism. So our debate in AEI is about what does that mean? Does that make China more or less dangerous to the rest of us. Hal Brands and Michael Beckley wrote a terrific book called Danger Zone, which argued that it took a historical analysis looking back to conclude that the countries that are the greatest danger to international peace and security are stalled aspiring powers. That's Japan in 1937, it's Germany in 1914, and they worry that we don't have a long-term problem with China we have a near-term problem with China and therefore should be really pushing forward on preparations for a China that attempts to seize or blockade Taiwan or create other kinds of dangers in the international order. The second of our warring tribes is Derek Scissors and Oriana Schuyler Mastro, who view China's theory of control of the country. The Chinese Communist Party controls the country on the argument that they produce prosperity in return for restricting political liberties. And so they think even if China could win a war against the United States, which all of us deeply doubt, they couldn't afford the economic disruption 
that that would create. So they don't think we have a near-term China problem. They think China's going to be a major economy and a difficult actor politically, but not likely to run the risk of a war that could see the end of Communist Party control. And then the third of our warring tribes is uh, the great China expert Dan Blumenthal and the military expert Fred Kagan. And they believe that the use of military force is China's worst option for recapturing Taiwan and that they don't need to resort to it because they are succeeding through a combination of coercion and incentives, largely economic incentives, to undercut democracy in free societies, to bribe governments in authoritarian societies into cooperation, and to create enough military pressure that the rest of us lose our nerve in defending our interests. I myself think that the Chinese are a near-term problem and that even if they are having success in their current strategy, it is growing a lot more confrontational and a lot more provocative. And while I don't think there's such a thing as war by accident, I do worry that the Chinese military, either under instructions or on their own autonomy, are playing a very dangerous game uh, that could bring us all into a war that we in the West don't want, and maybe the Chinese government doesn't even want. So if we can get through the near-term risk, we might be on safer ground. Do you, do you have a view on that longer-term picture, I suppose? I do. Yeah, go on. And I genuinely believe that we are going to have a China that respects its own people and becomes what Bob Zelig so famously said as a responsible stakeholder, because I do not believe that authoritarian systems can produce the prosperity that the Chinese Communist Party has taught Chinese to expect for themselves. And I don't know why Xi Jinping's government threw open the doors and ended their zero COVID policy, but uh, it looks to me like there were some protests brewing around the country and the Communist Party was fearful of those protesters. And I do really believe Thomas Jefferson was right, right? In, in repressive societies, the people fear the government and in free societies, government has to worry about people. Again, like wonderfully reassuring, and I and I, I desperately hope you're right. What can the rest of us actually do? I mean, we we obviously don't go for uh, regime change or anything like that. Um, but what should other countries, particularly Indo-Pacific countries, be doing to try and either encourage that kind of development in China, or at least keep things stable and give it the time and the breathing space for that? to allow that to happen organically within China itself? That is such a great question. I genuinely believe that using the tools of free societies to protect and advance free societies is the right policy path. So we don't want to become like China out of concern for China. But using what free societies do well, transparency, the rule of law, international organizations, cooperation, 
internationally, keeping our own politicians honest, understanding that there are costs to the policies that we have been pursuing where we follow the rules and China doesn't have to. And so realigning those. I'm less concerned about stability than you are, although I agree that we need to stretch out the timeline and that playing for time has been successful Western strategy on a lot of fronts for a lot of years. And we shouldn't lose confidence that our advantages, the dynamism of our economies, the dynamism of our civil society, the accountability of our governments, those are enormous advantages. And holding China in place while allowing those to continue to make us successful and to create possibilities that people living in repressive societies, when opportunities present themselves, can change their own governance. Do you think there is a risk that we will not do that? Uh, I mean, do you see worrying signs within democracies? I think you made a reference at the, the start to concerning trends within modern democracies beyond the, you know, the US and, and beyond. I mean, do, yeah. do you see signs that maybe we might become our own worst enemies in that respect? Well, we are certainly doing some of China's work for them. Because what they are saying is between the policy mistakes of the Iraq war, the 2008 financial crisis, the social upheaval over concern about police brutality and racism, that, you know, you don't want what the West has to offer. It's so tumultuous. It's so uncertain. We can give you certainty, even if it's unpleasant. Authoritarian governments try and make those arguments a lot. And they get traction sometimes, but I, I struggle to think of a case where people have been given a choice of who rules them and they choose repressive governments. How do you think that plays in countries at the moment that, and I'm not quite sure what the right term is here, but not, not advanced democracies, not, you know, not sort of what, what mature democracies, whatever term you want to use. Do you think that message from China is resonating in places like Southeast Asia, for instance? I do think it's resonating in some places. And the places it's resonating most are places where we have paid too little attention. You know, one of my favorite reflections on foreign policy comes from a novel in the 1950s called The Ugly American. And one of the heroes of that story says, American policy will fail when it is grandiose and ideological, and it will succeed when it is modest and tries to help people solve their problems. And so we have been absent on a lot of diplomatic fronts. We've been absent in caring about a lot of other people's problems and showing up as Australia demonstrated for us among Pacific Islanders, right? The initiatives you took years ago, the United States is just following up on now. And it's the right answer in both cases, right? That to help societies progress towards stable representative government makes the international order more peaceful and more prosperous for us all. Can I pose a little thesis to you and you can tell me whether you agree with it or not or what you think of it? 
we, we had a stable international order post World War II. We had globalization. We had you know the opening of economies that brought great prosperity worldwide. Many countries that were economically far behind have caught up with what you might call the West, and now advanced economies, Western democracies are. The citizens in those countries are looking at the rest of the world thinking, well, we are not economically privileged anymore. And we are wondering why jobs that we used to regard as ours and we used to regard as uh, supportive of, a, of, say, a middle class existence are now sitting in places like China and, 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 and Southeast Asia. And, and we feel betrayed by that. And so we are retreating politically in a lot of these uh, Former West, well, you know what, what we might call Western countries. You see that in America first, in the United States, but it's not only there. You see it in Europe. You see it in Western Europe. You see it in countries like Australia, and in varying ways. And that we've therefore sort of lost some interest in that international diplomacy, that international outreach to places like Southeast Asia, some of those countries that we might have ignored a little bit more recently, not doing that diligent work that we used to do because the, the political payoff isn't actually there for elected governments. And in fact, it, it might even, you know, it, it might be deleterious to uh, to their political interests to actually invest in that kind of thing. You, you know, you see voters potentially saying, you know, why are we spending money doing this, trying to influence Southeast Asia? Asia. Why aren't we you know, spending that money here at home? So I have three objections to your thesis. The first is that, you know, you describe the Cold War as a stable time, and that's just not what it looks like to me, right? The Berlin crisis of 1948, the Berlin crisis of 1958 and 1961. If you ask you know, anybody in the 54 countries of the continent of Africa that had the upheaval of decolonialism and then were pawns in the Cold War competition between the West and the Soviet Union, I think we have a tendency, all of us have a tendency to mythologize the past and think that there was a time where our leaders were great statesmen, and they weren't shackled by tawdry domestic policy. They thought in internationalist terms. And at least for my own sweet provincial country, I cannot find that time, right? And so it's been, math class isn't newly hard. Math class has always been hard. The, the second objection is describing globalization, that is the movement of jobs to lower paying production sites as though it's a tornado or a natural disaster that hit Western economies, when in fact, Western consumers chose those outcomes, right? We chose to buy products that were cheaper and now we're mad to see the consequences of that. And so we just have to have honest conversations with ourselves about, am I going to buy a more expensive television if it's made by American workers? And politics is have we ha how we have those conversations and make those trade-offs. And I think the Biden administration has taken one approach to that, which is spendthrift subsidies of American companies, which I think is bad government policy because it's just going to create a... Actually... The White House is genuinely telling our European allies who complain about America's 
you know, America only production subsidies, the White House is actually telling them you should just subsidize your own instead of how about we return to agreed rules of trade and let our companies compete and talk to our own publics about if you think it's patriotically important to have these jobs in America, then let's talk about what the costs of that are. So it's not newly hard. It's always been hard. And of course, governments want to avoid talking about things that the public doesn't want to spend money on. In the United States right now, we're having a big debate over aid to Ukraine, where a lot of my fellow Republicans and a lot of people on the Democratic left are making exactly the argument that you outlined, which is, we sure have a lot of problems at home, and the president hasn't explained why this is so important compared to other things. But this is where civil society comes in. This is where think tanks come in. It's where journalism comes in, which is to say, the United States will be a lot less prosperous if we don't uphold the international order that has made us both safe and wealthy. And it's frustrating to do. And a lot of times partners don't do what we wish they did. And, and by the way, we don't do what they wish we did on an awful lot of occasions, but it is absolutely better than the alternatives. And I'm sorry for going on so long, but I want to add one more little piece, which is we actually have data that you can have these conversations with voters. So the Chicago Council on Global Affairs does annual surveys of American public attitudes on foreign policy problems. And in the run-up to the 2016 election, there was a lot of support for President Trump's three fundamental policies that immigrants are taking our jobs, that trade is bad for America, and that allies are taking advantage of us. Once my fellow Americans saw those policies in action, you saw a huge swing away from them. I mean, Congress even legislated against the president having the ability to reduce U.S. troops stationed overseas. So Republicans in Congress worked against a Republican president because the American public actually likes our friends, actually wants them to be safe as well as us safe, actually believes immigrants are what make America great, and that legal immigration needs to be expanded so that we have the immigrants who make America such a wonderful place. And they actually, Americans, Chicago Council on Global Affairs has never recorded this high of American support for trade as being good for my family. So political parties are lagging, at least in my own country on this. I love those long answers because, frankly, I think we desperately need that kind of uh, degree of sophistication in the uh, in the public discussion far more than we have it now. Corey, I could ask 50 more questions because it's so much fun having you here. Thank you so much for being in Canberra. Thanks uh, for being in Australia. And thanks for taking part in the ASPE conference. Thanks for a conference that I learned a ton at. Brilliant, brilliant. And we're def definitely going to have you back next year. Thank you. Thanks. That's all we have time for today on Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back with another episode soon. Thanks for listening.